0: Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Elb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Steven Sashen, one of the founders and CEO of Zero Shoes. Zero Shoes produces a lightweight minimalist footwear designed for walking, running, and athletics. I first heard about Zero Shoes on Peter Atiyah's podcast episode with Irene David. That was about the evolution of the foot. Since listening to that episode, I've been an avid Zero fan. I wear my pair of Zeros every day, whether I'm walking, running, or hiking. It's really changed my perception on what is the right footwear on your feet And on this episode, Stephen does an amazing job breaking down the science as well as how zero has grown to just some amazing heights. Without further ado, here's Stephen. Stephen, thanks so much for being here. How are you?
1: I'm as well as one could be during all the crazy things that are happening inside, outside, and around the world.
0: Yeah, I really, really appreciate you uh, being here on the show and uh, really excited to talk about
1: the foot. Well, I seem to know something about that, so let's have that conversation.
0: Awesome. So how did you discover minimalism, shoes, barefoot running, and maybe just like the, your journey of founding Zero?
1: Yeah, it's pretty simple in a way. When I was 45, which is just shy of, oh, I'm almost 59. You can do the math. I, uh, I got back into sprinting at that age, which was a crazy idea. After about a 30-year break, I hadn't really done any competitive sprinting since high school. And I was getting injured constantly. Like every two weeks, something was pulling or tearing or ripping or something. And after a couple of years of this, a friend of mine, who's a world champion cross-country runner, suggested that I try running barefoot to see if I learned anything. And to make a long story very short, what I learned was what the form problems that I had that were leading to my injuries, and more importantly, how to naturally correct them. Because basically, when you're running barefoot, doing it wrong hurts, doing it right feels great. In fact, you can spot a barefoot runner from 50 yards uh, away because they are, uh, what's it called, Um, smiling. You know, they look like they're having a good time, not just grinding through the miles. They're, they're enjoying themselves. And I I wanted that barefoot natural movement experience as much as I could have it because when I discovered it, my injuries went away. I became faster. I became a master's All-American sprinter. So at that time, one of the fastest guys over 45 in the country. Now I'm one of the fastest guys over 55 in the country. And, you know, I also wanted to be able to get into restaurants without having to argue when they would say, you know, you're not allowed to come in here with bare feet. It's against the law. I said, no, it's not. Here's a letter from the Secretary of State. That was all kind of a hassle. So I knew about the Tarahumara Indians in Mexico who ran in... Sole shoe sandals made from scraps of used tire laced to their foot. Uh, they're featured in the book Born to Run that came out around that same time in 2008, 2009. And I found some rubber from a footwear repair place. I found some string at Home Depot. I figured out a lacing system and tied it on my feet and away I went. And I made a pair for myself, for my wife, for a couple other local runners And then they told two friends and they told two friends and they told two friends. And one day, this guy named Michael Sandler, who was a barefoot running coach, said, I've got a book coming out about barefoot running. If you treated this sandal making hobby like a business and had a website, for example, I could put you in the book. Well, I'd been an internet marketer since like 1992. So I rush home and present this incredible opportunity to my wife, who assures me that I am completely full of it. And it won't work, won't make any money, waste of time, total distraction from other things we were doing. And, you know, I'm a good husband. So I said, yeah, okay, you're right. I will do it. And then um, I'm a typical husband. So after she went to bed, I built a website. And, and it just took off. I mean, it really, th- that was the beginning of selling a do-it-yourself sandal making kit based on like a 10,000-year-old idea.
0: That's amazing. I mean, well, first of all, what I also think is uh, pretty interesting is I think you're the second entrepreneur that's been on the show that was inspired by the book Born to Run. What? Who else? Daniel Gluck, who founded Health Warrior, he was inspired by chia seeds, where he learned about the effects uh, of chia seeds. It's really cool how that one book, two completely different ideas, right? Yeah. And yet you both found inspiration and it built, you know, incredible businesses from it. So that's that's awesome.
1: Yeah, we used to joke that Chris McDougall, the author of that book, um, he was our unofficial marketing department for about the first two years.
0: That's awesome. It makes a lot of sense. So bring us up to speed a little bit. I know you found barefoot running. I know you found minimalist footwear starting developing sandals. But what is wrong with cushioned shoes when you actually run on them?
1: Oh, where to begin? How much time do you have? So let's back up and, and look at a couple of things. First of all, I'm not suggesting anyone run barefoot. I mean, it's a lot of fun. It's great. There's reasons to do it, but I'm not saying you should. If you're totally attached to high heeled, elevated heel motion control, padded shoes, That's cool. I'm going to give you reasons that you might want to just add something to the mix um, that will be beneficial. Um, But if you really want to think about this, you got to start with the following idea. The oldest footwear that's been discovered in archaeological digs is about 10,000 years old. It's a sagebrush sandal that they found in a dig in uh, Oregon. And if you look at footwear for the the next 9,950 years after that 10,000-year-old discovery, all footwear looked kind of like ours. Basically, something to protect your foot, something to hold it onto your foot, and also something that lets your foot move as naturally as possible. So this is the second thing you've got to think about. You have a quarter of the bones and joints of your entire body in your feet and ankles. You have more nerve endings in the soles of your feet than anywhere but your fingertips and your lips. I'm going to suggest this is not an accident, that you're supposed to actually use those things at the bottom of your legs. And what they do with all those bones and joints is bend and flex and move. And with all those nerves is feel. And the important part about the feeling is that sending information to your brain that tells the rest of your body, including your feet, how to do that moving, bending, and flexing part. So if you're shutting down that feedback loop, you start to have problems. The other thing is if you don't let your feet move, you have problems. Think about this you put your foot in a cast or put your arm in a cast better, it doesn't come out magically stronger, comes out weaker. Same thing happens to your foot. Research shows, Protopapas shows that if you just put arch support in the shoes of healthy athletes, within 12 weeks, they lose up to 17% of the muscle mass in their feet. Tell me how that could be good. The answer is, it is not. So similarly, you put an elevated heel in a shoe and that changes your posture. It tips your pelvis forward. And then that puts strain on your back. Tell me how changing your posture is beneficial. It's not all that padding, aside from the fact that it doesn't reduce impact, which is sounds paradoxical. In fact, more paradoxically, padding can increase the amount of impact you hit the ground with because your brain is trying to get information, feedback from your feet. And if you can't get it, it will sometimes land harder to get some sort of information. But when you elevate your foot, you lift your foot off the ground, that makes you unstable. You're becoming less balanced. And if you can't feel things through all that foam, Your brain isn't getting that feedback that it needs to help you move naturally. And then there's one last crazy part about most traditional running shoes or not traditional modern running shoes is if you look at the shape of the toe box, it tends to be pointy then look at the shape of your toes and your foot. Not pointy, unless you've been shoving them into shoes that altered your your foot shape. So when you put it all together, the modern athletic shoe, I guess the best way I can can sum it all up is I was on a panel discussion at the American College of Sports Medicine and Irene had the last question. She directed it mostly to the guy from Brooks and from Adidas. And she said, look, in the 60s, we were running in super thin-soled running shoes. We were playing basketball in Chuck Taylors. We weren't seeing the type of injuries, the number of injuries, or the severity of injuries we're seeing now. So what problem were you trying to solve and why didn't it work? To which they had no answer. So there's people ask us all the time, where's the proof about what you're saying? I go, whoa, whoa back up. Where's the proof about what they're saying? The guy from Adidas said, we want to improve performance and reduce injury, but we can't prove that we're doing that because that would take a lot of time and a lot of money and have a lot of confounding factors in a study. I'm thinking, dude, if you could prove demonstrably that your shoe was better than the shoe of the guy sitting next to you, that's worth billions of dollars a year. And you're telling me you haven't done that study Because it's hard, you know, throw me a bone. Now, conversely, while there are a bunch of studies showing the value of things that we do, so the one that I just mentioned from Professor Papas, a study from Sarah Ridge, where she showed that just walking in shoes like ours, minimalist, truly minimalist shoes, builds foot muscle strength in as little as eight weeks, as much as doing an exercise program for your feet. Um, Isabel Sacco in Brazil, she showed that by putting minimalist shoes on the feet of elderly women, that for many of them, their knee osteoarthritis Went away. Now, the question you might ask is why? And the answer is again simple. So, you have this whole system in your lower body called muscles, ligaments, and tendons that are designed as springs and shock absorbers. And if you use them correctly, they protect your joints. If you don't let your feet do their job, that bending, flexing, moving thing, all that function tries unsuccessfully to move upstream to your ankle, your knee, your hip, your back. So, with a truly minimalist shoe, and I'll define that in a second. You're letting your feet do their job so the rest of your body can do its job. And the truly minimalist thing, I say that because the big shoe companies started selling shoes they call Barefoot or Minimalist that were nothing of the sort. They had enough cushioning, enough padding. They were narrow enough, thin enough, had arch support. All Basically, they just reduced what they were already doing in the modern running shoe, but they didn't go to something truly natural. And back to Irene Davis, her research showed that those shoes are the worst of all worlds because they they cut off the amount of feedback and movement that you have, but they're lightweight enough that you feel like you're doing more or you feel like you're more minimalist, but you still run with the same form that you would in a regular, you know, modern running shoe, which is problematic. So the biggest thing I can say or the the simplest thing I could have said if I started is, if I was smart enough, is it's not about the footwear, it's about the form, but footwear affects the form. Certain footwear changes, almost all footwear changes the way you move. And so what you ultimately want is something that lets you do what is as close to barefoot, as close to natural as possible, but then gives you the added benefits you might need, like additional traction if you're on trails, or a tiny bit of additional protection if you're on some you know difficult surface, or slip resistance, or insulation, or you know other things that you need. Again, backing up to 10,000 years ago, something to protect your foot, something to hold it on your foot.
0: That's really interesting. So your first product, you started out with the sandal, I think, as you you alluded to, is that right?
1: Again, a do-it-yourself kit to make your own sandals.
0: Wow. Why did you then want to expand to a full shoe?
1: Well, we didn't want to at first. We actually thought that our whole business would be would involve do it yourself or custom made sandals for people. We had a whole business plan built around that that turned out to not be viable financially. And we just started hearing feedback from people. It's like, I love this do it yourself thing, but my you know brother's not going to make his own. And so we went okay, and we figured out a way to do a ready. Pardon me, hiccups. Do a ready to wear version of that same idea, and people would say, oh, that's cool, but that design has a string between your toes. I don't want something between my toes. Now they were confusing what we were doing with flip-flops With the lacing system that we use, you don't have the pressure points that you get with flip-flops. You don't have the unnatural toe gripping that you need with flip-flops, but that's cool. We said, okay, so we came up with what's called a sport sandal style webbing system where the webbing goes over your foot instead of anything between your toes. And people would say, that's cool, but what do I do in the winter when I need to go to work? And then we made our first closed-toe shoe. And they said, that's cool, we made a casual shoe. They said, that's great, but what about a running shoe? But everything we've done from like the two-year mark on has been inspired by... By customers saying, I love what you're doing, and I need the following. Because what happens is they get really addicted to that natural movement feel, that natural posture, that natural movement, that natural feeling. And they just keep saying, here's what I need in the, the one place where I'm not getting it, where it just feels totally wrong. And I mean, we've had a bunch of ideas on our own that weren't inspired by customers, but then that the customers tell us if we were right or not. Happily, we've been right way more often than not.
0: When was that moment that, because of course you've been accustomed to running in cushion shoes for so long and I know that obviously it's natural, but when you've been doing something that's unnatural for so long, how long did it actually take you to, to actually get back that natural kind of running?
1: Yeah, I'm a freak, so I don't count. I'm really good at figuring out new movement patterns. I've done weird, I've done and taught everything from tap dancing to gymnastics to zen archery to tai chi and yoga to running i know i'm forgetting a bunch of things Um, so for me it was really just a couple of like my second barefoot run is when i discovered the form problem and it naturally corrected itself and it, it really took me like a week until that's just the way I ran because it was it was just so obvious in my body. it was just I could really feel it. Um, but for other people, it, I've identified four different neurological types and each one of those types has a different experience of how they get feedback, how they agile they are at learning new movement patterns, etc. And so the longest I've heard from anyone is a couple of months. But it continues to evolve. You keep getting better, better, better. But the basics, a couple of months on the outside. Now, now sometimes people, you know, balk at that. And I say, if you, again, let's go back to the arm in a cast metaphor or analogy. Um, when you take your arm out of a cast and it's all weak, you know, it takes a couple of months to build up strength again. No big deal. Everyone thinks that's just what you do. If I said to you, you know, you're going to take a couple of months to build up strength in your feet and agility and mobility and dexterity and balance that will last you for the rest of your life. Why wouldn't you do that when the opposite, when the other alternative is that your feet get progressively weaker, your balance gets progressively worse, and you know, hopefully you don't have what happens what happened to my dad happened to you, which is he was one of the millions of elderly people who tripped, fell down, broke his hip, and was dead two weeks later. He had crappy balance. You've been big in big thick shoes for, you know, decades and decades.
0: What's that process though in those two months? If people that want to actually go towards a minimalist shoe and they're used to heel striking, for example. And so how do you kind of go through that process? You obviously probably can't, if they're at very active runners, you probably can't do the same number of mileage. But what's that kind of like system that that they should be thinking about?
1: Yeah, yeah. So the instruction I like to give is this. um, Take off your shoes, ideally. If you want to get a pair of zero shoes, you can do that too, but barefoot is best, frankly, and we're the first ones to say it. Find a nice, smooth, hard surface, because that's the one that's going to give you the most feedback. People say, oh, I should run on grass, because humans evolved to run on grass. No, humans evolved to run on shit that you would never want to run on in a million years, even in shoes very often. Uh, Hard-packed mud with a whole bunch of crap coming out of it. You know, I mean, we evolved to run on every kind of surface, um, mostly ones that you would not like to run in now. So anyway, find a nice, smooth, hard surface is going to give you the most feedback, which is the most useful. Then you go for a super short run, like 20 seconds. And then you see how you feel the next day. If you feel fine, then next time go out and add 10 seconds. If you feel a little sore, then you want to rest till you get over the soreness. And then you want to go out and just, uh, well, basically the instruction after that is, uh, if it hurts, do something different till you're having fun. Now, what that means typically is one of a couple of things, basically three things. Thing number one, uh, try to land with your foot underneath your body. So get your foot closer to your center of mass. You may need to try to pretend that you're Fred Flintstone starting his car where his feet are spinning behind him and he can't catch up to his body. So sometimes, you know, people will, if you've been really overstriding, reaching out quite a bit, coming in just a little bit will feel like you're getting underneath your body, but you're probably not. So try to get your feet behind you. It's not possible, but just give it a whirl. The second thing, um again if you get your foot underneath you w- you will end up landing on your midfoot or your forefoot so that's a good thing don't reach out and point your toes by the way you may need video feedback for this because many people let's call it not optimal proprioceptive skills they'll think they're you know getting their feet underneath them then you look at video and they they're practically prancing and you just can't tell cuz you know we're not wired to know. And backing up that whole concept I had before of backside mechanics and the long stride happening behind you effectively, because we don't have eyes in the back of our head, we have a hard time perceiving things like that. So video feedback comes in really handy. The second thing, so get your feet underneath you. That's gonna That'll have you landing on your midfoot or forefoot, not the ball of your toes, and you don't need to stay on the ball of your foot. Just That's just your first point of contact, because your foot and the arch in your foot and the muscles and ligaments and tendons in your foot are the first point of your spring and shock absorber mechanism. So that's all good, good to do. The second thing, you want to think about lifting your foot off the ground rather than pushing your foot off the ground. So imagine if you stepped on a bee in your bare foot, you wouldn't push off the ground because that would dig the stinger further into your foot. You would lift off the ground reflexively. Your hip would flex. Your knee would come towards, you know, your it would move up basically. So you want to think about lifting your foot off the ground. And in fact, you want to think about your foot coming off the ground before it even hits the ground so that you're kind of increase. this brings us to the third point of possibly increasing your cadence the number of steps per minute that you're taking there's no magic number the number 180 steps per minute has been bandied about as like the holy grail of that's how many steps per minute you need to take and then the universe will be great and your mortgage rate will go down and your kids will get into a fine ivy league college not the case because there is no magic number it varies depending on who you are if you're running on a flat if you're going uphill downhill speeding up slowing down etc but bottom line for most runners if you pick up your cadence just a little bit, like let's say you're running at 160 steps per minute, you pick it up to 165, 166 maybe, and you see what happens. The, the There's a study that I found years ago that I've somehow lost and can't find, which annoys me, but is also typical because I am not the most organized person in the world, where that showed that the more people picked up their cadence, the less force they were applying to the ground until they hit a certain point where it turns around and becomes U-shaped. And so the faster your cadence gets after that, the more force you're putting in the ground until you become a sprinter like me, where you're putting like you know five times the amount of, of your body weight into the ground with every step. Um, you can't artificially f- fake that either, frankly. But the bottom line is moving slightly out of your comfort zone into a slightly faster cadence. And it's easiest to practice this uh, on a flat, on a track, for example, or a flat road. That will feel weird at first, but it also might just, Give you a little feeling like things are working a little better. It's a little easier. Um, my muscles aren't being used quite so much. The the overarching idea, other than uh, do something different to you're having fun, is see how much you can relax. See how much you can, how little effort you can use to do this. You want to have a slight lean forward, kind of from your ankles. There's, I mean, there's sort of more to it than this, but this will get you going. And back to your point about you're not just going to switch from running 10 miles a day to running 10 miles a day barefoot, that 20 second run, just like do that and then do the rest of your run, whatever you want to do. And then as you build up, once you, Oh, sorry. If you feel like you've hurt something in that first 20 second run, then you definitely want to pay attention to those cues that I just gave you. Uh, And ultimately what you're doing in this process is learning to listen to the feedback you're getting from your body and make adjustments and experiment and see what happens. One thing I like to suggest to people is do it worse. If you're overstriding, overstride more, just for a couple of strides. So you can feel that that's what you're doing that has become natural or habituated. Um, Now you're bringing it back to your awareness. It's all about awareness. And so you're becoming your own coach. And that's the real, real value here. And what you want to do, do that first 20-second run. Um, When when you can do that and it feels good, again, add 10 seconds, add 10 seconds, add 10 seconds. Then do the rest of whatever you want to do. And then eventually, at some point, you want to substitute one of your weekly runs. If you're a three day a week runner, for example, one of them will eventually become barefoot. And then, you know, maybe the second one, and then maybe the third, et cetera. So one of the problems that we have, we love to say don't do too much too soon. But you can only you know you did too much too soon when you've done too much too soon. So Last week, for example, I was doing a workout given to me by um, a guy who's got some very interesting ideas about improving speed and performance. And it was just doing one-legged calf raises and just see how many you could do in five minutes. It's like, okay. So I ended up doing 74 per leg in five minutes. Felt totally fine until 30 hours later. And from 30 hours later for the next four days, I couldn't walk because my calves were so sore. Felt fine at the time. Did a little too much too soon.
0: So always start slow and then see how you are in 24 hours.
1: Just use the feed because I mean, it can take 24 hours or so till you really feel the effect of something. If you feel fine, great. If you feel less than fine, do something different until you're having fun.
0: Oh, that's helpful. And also I love that it's, also a very slow process too, meaning it's 20 seconds, right? It's 40 seconds. It's not go out and run a mile barefoot first. You know, it's very, very, very slow.
1: And look, you know, what'll happen is you'll you'll get to a point where you're going to go 10 seconds. That's ridiculous. I'm going to do an extra 30 seconds or an extra minute or an extra, you know, but but you'll be doing that because you've built up, you've done that little bit first to go, oh, now here's what will often happen is once you start having a lot of fun, you may end up doing too much because what happens over time is we get tired. And as we get tired, we don't feel that our gait is changing and our ability to feel it disappears as well. So so there are some people who are naturals and I'm kind of in that category. And the problem with naturals is that they'll go out and do too much and get tired and revert to some previous level. Um, I didn't really have that problem because I don't run distance. I'm a sprinter. So, you know, I never do more than 15 seconds, 20 seconds.
0: Back to the business side of things. you know. So you built the website in a night um, when your wife was sleeping. Yeah, I know you came from a growth marketing background, but what were maybe some of the parts of the metric side of things that you thought, all right, maybe there's something here and how you maybe thought about promotion and just doing these like little tests to see if, if zero could actually be something?
1: Well, the little test was just building the site, frankly. Um, and the second part was before I built the site, um, I had already noticed something that I didn't tell my wife until the next morning when she growled at me That I about having built a site. I said, the people that are ranking for the keywords that I care about in Google search are there by accident. And they didn't do anything to get there. It was information sites and articles and things that had, you know, there was no, no, no business was attached to any of those things. I said, um, I, I can own this in three months. I know how to create videos and promote them and write articles and promote that and do on-page SEO and all the things that you need to do. I said, I'll own it in about three months. Um, I was wrong. It only took me six weeks. And so that was one thing. The other thing, I participated in conversations that were happening online and tried to add value about how to make sandals, about how to run, about how to sprint. Um, And I made videos giving away the farm about how I was doing our whole business. You know, here's where I got my materials. Here's what you can do yourself. Here's how to make them. I mean, I gave it all away. And I met people years later who said, I found your videos and, you know, I took your advice and just did it on my own. I never have never given you any money. They were saying quite embarrassedly. And I said, I don't care. That's why I did it. So totally fine with me. So basically find where people are already talking about what you're doing and add value to the conversation. That's the gist.
0: What was that process, first building out these kits for folks? What was it like supplying it, or were you kind of just all DIY and the first time, or what was that about in terms of the product?
1: At first, it was really literally, we were just taking big sheets of rubber, cutting them into smaller sheets of rubber, getting big things of cord from Home Depot, cutting. actually driving around to every Home Depot in the Colorado, Denver metro area, because the cord we were using came in different colors, and we only wanted like four or the five different colors that it came in. And so uh, we would have to drive around to every Home Depot. There's like 20 of them to get what we needed. So we were cutting that cord in a smaller cord and then passing that out with instructions. Then people would say, you know, I need some help. So we started doing custom-made sandals where people would uh, make a tracing of their foot, send that to us, and we would make the sandal for them and send it to them. So that was really how it all started.
0: That's amazing. And at what point, how long into the business did you actually need to figure out, okay, we actually can't do this all ourselves? Uh, this is not sustainable as it is.
1: I think to help with shipping first, I can't remember if it was shipping or customer service. Any business that I'm involved in, I know that I need to get out of the customer service job as quickly as humanly possible. If you call me a name, if you say, Stephen, you are a whatever, fill in the blank with whatever you think I am, the odds of my disagreeing with you are pretty slim. It could be factually inaccurate. You could say you're a tall black woman and I would go, "Hmm, not the way it looks in the mirror, but maybe you're right. But if I create a product and you have a problem with a product, I take that very personally. And so in that anxiety, I want to get people off the phone and their problem solved as quickly as I can, which sometimes makes me not the best customer service person because most people want to tell their story of woe and misery, and I want to get past the story and solve the problem. So one of our first two hires was a customer service person who was a huge fan of ours, 60-something-year-old guy who ran 150 miles a week in our sandals, um, really, really great guy. And then one of the other first hires was someone to help with fulfillment As things got bigger, you know, we couldn't run the business and ship product, you know, pack and ship product the way we did when it was literally just getting started. So those were the first two. And then we realized we needed additional customer service and additional shipping. And we, Lena was getting tired of the fact that the business had taken over the entire house and that from 8 a.m. till 7 p.m. there was other people occupying large chunks of it. So we got an office at about the two-year mark.
0: On the supply chain side, how did you approach the supply chain in terms of finding, finding manufacturers and, and kind of going through that process?
1: So um, I'm I'm laughing for reasons that will become obvious. So the first thing is that we, I mean, I lucked out. When I, when I just wanted to make my first kit or do it myself, I found a company that sold me the rubber that I wanted to use because they didn't know I wasn't a shoe repair store. And they only sold to shoe repair stores. And when I went to place a bigger order and they figured out that I wasn't a store, they went well. You're already in the system, so what the hell? We'll keep selling to you. And then at one point, we were using a product, and we still sell this product. It's a, a rubber called uh, Cherry from Vibram. And at one point, we called Vibram and asked them if we could get a wholesale account. And they said, sure, the minimum order quantity is $15,000. And we're like, uh, yeah, that's not going to happen. And they said, well, the good news is we just ordered 5,000 sheets of that material that you're using. And we said, uh, the bad news is we just ordered 6,000 sheets of that material. So... For a while, we owned all of that material on the planet, and we realized that was putting us in a very vulnerable position. Around that time, we had just, through weird coincidental social contacts, met some guys who'd been in the footwear biz for 40 years, and they introduced us to an outsole manufacturer in Korea and helped us design a new outsole with better performance characteristics that we wanted. that was already foot shaped, so you didn't have to cut out as much and you know make it as difficult to make. And we started manufacturing our, our own material in Korea. And the, the reason that I kind of chuckled, it was not a funny ha-ha, it was a, ah, those were the days, ha-ha, is the first batch of, of outsoles that we got from this manufacturer, some of the larger sizes weighed less than the smaller sizes which seems odd because you would think that if there's larger, it's got more material, et cetera. And sometimes the left and the rights were two completely different textures or densities or weights. And we're going, you know, uh, this is a real problem. We have people complaining. And they said, well, what did it cost to deal with all their complaints? We said $5,000. They said, well, if you want to fix it with us, it'll cost you $50,000. Oh, uh, well, can't you just give us better quality? No, because footwear outsole manufacturers didn't care. Because the footwear companies didn't care because they were just taking the outsole and gluing it onto something. And if it wore out and it was the wrong weight or whatever, it didn't matter. You can basically hide your mistakes in traditional or modern footwear design where there's a whole bunch of layers. In something truly minimalist, there's nowhere to hide. So then we started calling around to other rubber manufacturers in Korea, and they had all heard about us already. So we had already gotten a bad name by asking someone to do something different and do it well and luckily at that around that same time we again accidentally bumped into another sourcing agent who manufactured and worked with factories in China and i we called them i flew to new york and met with them and they said we don't work with everybody so we're going to you know call around see what we think we'll get back to you if it seems like we can help and i got to tell you i have no idea why they chose to help us um, it's sort of a mystery to me because we were a tiny 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 little company and very very <laughs> demanding um, but what I found out years later is that they literally call around people in the industry and said, do you know about these kids who are making these wacky sandals? And again, for reasons that I, to this day, don't know, a lot of people said a lot of really nice things about us and what we were doing. And that's what got us into that, uh, to work with that agent whom we've now been working with for, I guess, eight over eight years.
0: That's amazing. Can you unpack that a little bit in terms of what that quality control is like, or like the more like the traditional shoe supply chain on the sole side of things.
1: Yeah. So the way you make rubber outsoles uh, first, you make the rubber and then you, you essentially the way it's typically done, you're making a kind of finished product to begin with. So you end up, you you just, you literally kind of mix the rubber in um, like a cement mixer kind of thing. And then you pour it out into something and turn it into some, you know, like big flat um, sheet, for example, Then you have a mold, like it's a giant, super heavy metal mold. And you cut up pieces from that flat sheet and you throw them in the mold. And the mold gets put in a machine that um, it's like a giant uh, George Foreman grill, basically. So it's a giant hydraulic press that both heats and presses the mold, which causes a lot of heat, makes the rubber melt, fills out the mold, etc. It's really easy to not have the same amount of material in each cavity in the mold or to just not be paying attention to, you know, how it gets filled at all, because, or, or not pay attention to what you do with the material when it comes out of the mold and make it keep its shape. Because again, most outsole manufacturers don't care about any of those things that I just mentioned, because the shoe companies don't care.
0: When you found that manufacturer in China, were they also very invested in your mission as well?
1: Could not have cared less. Here's the thing. One of the reasons that, they, that these this agent and these factories picked us up is that they've been in the business long enough to know that sometimes lightning strikes and you never know. And so as we continued to grow, we became lightning striking for people. Like during the pandemic, since we were primarily direct to consumer company, most of the companies that were selling wholesale pulled their orders and factories were shutting down. And we kept our factories at least alive because we were selling really well and needed product. And we said, we know you could we could pressure you for better prices, but you're our partner. So we just want you to be able to manufacture for us. That's all we care about. And they're like, oh my God, thank you. And by the way, some people will say, why don't you just manufacture here? And the answer is that there is almost no rubber outsole manufacturing happening in America. In fact, I'm not sure there actually is any other than in very small companies doing it on their own or companies using materials that don't last as long as ours don't have the performance characteristics that we need. But we've been working in fact with a domestic rubber manufacturer to try to get them to make some of our products. It's taken two years, two and a half years and they still can't get it right. So there's A, the idea that in America it's always better is not true. And B, um, you know, we, we feel really good about the factories that we work with. We are in them all the time and we know how well they treat their employees and the environment. We are not crazy about many things about China, but there aren't really other options. Um, so many people say, well, if you really wanted there to be, you could do it here. It's like, no, 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 no. The industry experts of which you, Mr. Person who's suggesting this is not, have said that the only way footwear manufacturing is going to come back to America is with tens of billions of dollars of subsidies from the government, and it's going to take 10 or 20 years minimum And the only companies that will take advantage of that at first are the large companies who will never give us access to those factories. If you leave China and go to other places, the quality isn't there, the experience isn't there, and they're still sourcing most of their materials from China anyway. The short version is it's a very complicated supply chain that people imagine is much easier than it is. And some people say, well, you could move if you just are willing to pay more because I'm willing to pay more. It's like, no, 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 that's not the delimiting factor. The actual ability to make something is the delimiting factor, not the the cost. And when people say I'm willing to pay more if it was made in America, the research shows that that's very rarely true anyway. We would love to manufacture domestically, but the simplest thing I say is it's literally not possible today in the same way that it's literally not possible to get a domestically manufactured version of the device that you and I are using for this conversation. Well, you know, it's interesting. There's a shoe company that's for sale right now. They approached us and we looked at their numbers And they are manufacturing in America and the prices of their shoes astronomically high and the amount of money they make for every pair they sell is low enough that there's no opportunity for them to sell into wholesale, to have, you know, be in a retail store. There's just not enough money left over at the end of the day. So they don't have a viable business.
0: Wow. That's really interesting. I know you're also an environmentalist and you really care about um, impact, Um, What does going all green mean to you, environmental impact mean to you?
1: Oh, boy. Again, another topic that everybody wants to be really simple that is not. So let me start with the not simple part. Any of the, quote, green products that people use, where uh, some plastic is made from recycled water bottles or, you know, um, used elephant dung or whatever the hell it is. A lot of the times, the carbon cost of making the, quote, green product is higher than the not green product. In other words, there's a lot of hand-waving and greenwashing. I've talked to people who are in the business of manufacturing, quote, recycled products. And I go, "Are you? does it cost you less from a carbon perspective to go out into the ocean, dredge stuff out, sort it, clean it, break it down, build it back, et cetera? And he goes, oh, no, 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 definitely carbon negative. No question about it. So there's a lot of that going on. And also a lot of those green products, even the, the real ones, Are again more expensive. So the products that are made with them are more expensive. The people that are buying them, especially the really expensive ones, are like, you know, a bunch of rich white people. So congratulations. And look, the real impact that it's making, so, so tiny as to be non existent. You know, 400,000 tons of crap is dumped into the ocean every year by America alone. The fact that you're making your shoe with laces that come from recycled water bottles is not making a dent. Now, that doesn't mean you don't do it. In fact, (laughs) we're moving to. uh, And by the way, there were some companies that were literally making water bottles that they were then breaking down so they could say they were made from recycled water bottles. Yeah. So you've got to be really, really careful. And and for us, we don't want to do any greenwashing. We don't want to do it if it's just because we can make a tell a green story that's not legit. So that brings us to where we are. A, we're making products with fewer parts. So there's fewer materials and less energy involved in making them. We're not using a whole bunch of big thick foam, which is perhaps one of the bigger polluters uh, when you're doing that. We do use some little bits of foam in certain places, but a mild amount and, and with a foam that lasts for a really long time. So we're using less material, less energy, and like you said before, we're making things with a 5,000-mile sole warranty so things last longer. So we're keeping things out of landfills as well. We are making more and more products using hemp, uh, which is just more environmentally sound than cotton, uh, uses less water, easier to process, et cetera. We are doing some materials with uh, those recycled water bodily things because we found ones that are legit green. We are We have a shoe coming out next year that has recycled parts and biodegradable parts. And so it's our first foray into really going, quote unquote, sustainable. And people will say, why don't you do that for every product? And you go, because we want to see how this all performs. And again, it's more expensive to do all that right now. And you don't necessarily get the same performance characteristics, or you can't make every kind of component to our product that you want with those kinds of materials. So there's some materials that are conducive to being made out of, you know, recycled water bottles, others that are not. And uh, there's just a, again, Unless you're going to build a business where that's all you're doing, you can do that. But when you're doing the, the broad product line we have with shoes, boots, and sandals, both casual and performance, for a whole bunch of different use cases, you don't have that same flexibility, if you will. You can't just make everything that way when you're making this breadth of products.
0: How should consumers be thinking when they see about environmental, maybe it's it's based off of recycles, but like, how do you as a consumer even think about it? Because I know this is one of the areas you're very, very passionate about.
1: It's hard. Um, It's hard because the companies that are greenwashing hide the fact that they're greenwashing. I mean, you'd have to track down the factories that they're using and the suppliers to those factories. And uh, it's almost deliberately obfuscated. Yeah, there's not a good answer for that. It's kind of like organic. It's really easy for people to claim organic, and you have no way of knowing.
0: That's a fair point. Speaking of advertising, I've seen now a number of adverts. I think when I first started buying zero shoes, certainly from zero, but also from other companies. Some say they're minimalist. Some say they're zero, just zero drop. Mm -hmm. What is some of the differences? How do you think about the competitive landscape right now when it comes to zero?
1: So back to Irene Davis for the win. Irene breaks down things into what she calls minimalist and partial minimalist. And on my podcast, when I talked to Irene, I said, I think you're just being politically correct. And if you weren't, you'd be saying real minimalist and fake minimalist. And she did not disagree with me. So real minimalist is not only quote zero drop, which means the heel is not elevated from the toe, uh, low to the ground, has zero to very, very little cushioning. So you can still feel things, has a wide toe box so your toes can spread out and splay more, um, does not have any arch support, and and it's um, super flexible and super lightweight. So the partial minimal shoes are missing some of those key features. They're often too narrow. So like, uh, I don't want to mention names. So there's one company, um, let's just say it rhymes with Narrow. And so the Narrow company, I can't get their shoes on my feet. They're too narrow for my feet and they call them minimalist shoes. Okay, um, but again, way too narrow for me. The other thing is from Irene's point is most of those partial minimalist shoes They have enough cushioning, enough padding that back to a previous point we made, you can't feel the ground. You're not getting enough sensation to elicit those gait changes to a more natural running style. So I've seen maybe three or four Kickstarter campaigns in the last couple of years of quote barefoot shoes that are either way too narrow or way too much uh, stack height, it's called but way too thick. So you can't feel enough. So they go, look how flexible it is. Well, congratulations. It's flexible, but it's, you can't feel anything and I can't get my toes in it. Uh, So The You you need to look at all the characteristics to find something that it's about that is providing the real benefits of natural movement. Right now, there's a very small number of companies who are doing this.
0: That's why I think it's so interesting because if a company just says there's zero drop, it could be that there's cushioning in the shoe. It's just that it's actually evenly distributed throughout the shoe, right?
1: Well, Ultra, our down-the-street neighbor, uh, they make zero drop shoes that have a bunch of cushioning in them. And Hoka has a shoe that is a zero drop shoe that's got like an inch and a half of padding underneath it. So the fact that your foot is flat, that's cool, except that you can design it so that when you're standing, you're flat, essentially. But when you're running, there's still shape in the sole that's affecting your gait. So you can still have zero drop that doesn't even give you the benefits of zero drop, let alone zero drop that doesn't give you the benefits of... The important benefits of letting your foot flex and bend and move and feel.
0: Why did you fundraise, and what's it like to have you know private equity as board members? How does that maybe change, or does that change at all the business or your decision making?
1: It really depends on the private equity partner that you have, because different partners act in very different ways. Some want to take over, some want to be totally hands off. Some are in between. All of them have opinions. Some of them will try to force those upon you. Um, Some of them have very different goals than you do. So finding a good partner. Is, uh, let alone someone who's willing to give you money at a rate that you think is acceptable, is really hard. I mean, it's, you know, think about how many people you dated before you found whomever you might happen to be with now. Even those relationships don't always work out. So it's really no different. We took on a private equity partner because of two things, maybe three. Uh, let's see. I'm not gonna put a number on it. We'll find out how many it is. The first is in 2019 with the trade war. It increased our costs significantly. It also affected our business in some uh, very surprising and and detrimental ways because other companies were terrified by the taxes that were getting imposed. They started bringing in even more product. So the idea that the trade war was going to reduce the amount of stuff people were bringing in from Asia, it had the exact opposite impact. In fact, much, much uh, more opposite than anyone has, has even discovered. But what that did is it clogged up the port in L.A., And so we had product sitting in the port for months and we couldn't get it because there weren't enough trucks and trains to get shit out of LA. And so uh, for a while, no one even knew where our stuff was. So we lost the spring, which is one of our big selling seasons. And then later when it looked like more taxes were going to get added to footwear, a very large company that used the same factory we used said to the factory, we need everything done by June. And so that pushed us to the back of the line so we missed part of our fall selling season as well. And then there was going to be more taxes levied, possibly. So we ordered a whole bunch of product for to get in months early, which cost us a bunch of money, and made it so that we weren't profitable in 2019, which messed up our ability to borrow money. And no one cared about the fact that everything that made us not profitable was totally explainable, totally one-time, irreproducible, etc. They didn't care. They just were looking at the numbers. You didn't do as well as you expected. Therefore, we can't loan you money. Now, ironically, uh, it became somewhat prescient in 2020 when COVID hit uh, and no one could get anything out of, out of China. We had inventory. We had product to sell because we brought it in early. No one gave us credit for that. No one gave us credit for being smart. So they just wouldn't give us credit. And so that was problematic. And my wife, who is my co-founder and CFO, spent the majority of her time trying to find money. And when the fall was coming up and we didn't know what was going to happen with the elections, we didn't know if there was going to be more trade war. I mean, it it was just such, it was so um, unknown. And the financial markets were similarly, they didn't know who was going to be president. They were terrified about what was going to happen. So the money kind of deals dried up for a while and put it all together. And we realized, that the only way to stay and and oh, the other thing, we never had enough inventory, we never had enough money to get enough inventory to support the, the growth that we've been experiencing. So put all that together. And when this one private equity company reached out to us because they saw us in the Inc 5000 for the fourth year in a row or fifth year in a row, um, and they seemed like good partners for a number of reasons. It just seemed like, you know, that was the right time to get the infusion of capital to help us grow the business more and to bring on these people who've been very helpful in what we're trying to do moving forward in a number of ways. One of our new board members used to be the CEO of a very large footwear company. And because of his experience and his connections, it's already opened quite a number of doors because he invested directly with us, kind of parallel to the private equity company that he advises. That really proved that if this guy's investing in this shoe company, that means something. And a number of his friends reached out going, well, should we talk about this? To which he says, uh, yeah, not yet, but you know, soon.
0: That's awesome, that's awesome. I mean, well, I mean, just, just fascinating hearing what happened in 2019, which was a very, very rough year, but it seemed like in 2020, because you had inventory, you did quite well, so that was much easier than you. So how do you change consumer perception towards feet? Has that been tough?
1: It's not about feet as much as it's about anything. There's a great book called Catalyst by Jonah Berger. Uh, uh, The subtitle is How to Change Anyone's Mind. And what he points out is the kinds of beliefs we have, why we have them, and based on the kind and the why, the appropriate approach to get people to think differently and possibly change their mind. Of course, you're never going to be 100%. But most of what he does is helping people get into a state of cognitive dissonance, where, for example, their experience, their personal experience conflicts with what they believe in such a way that they have to resolve that tension, possibly by changing their uh, thinking and or behavior. So my favorite example from the book is, uh, it's a Chinese, uh, sorry, a Thai anti-smoking campaign, where the camera comes up to someone whose back is to the camera, and you hear someone say, can I get a light? And the person turns around with a cigarette in their hand and then starts lecturing the person who said, can I get a light about why smoking is horrible and they shouldn't smoke and it'll kill them and it's bad for you. And just, they go on and on and on and on and on. And that's like a weird thing to say to someone who just asked you for a light. And then the camera pulls around to the other side and you see that the person who said, can I get a light? is like eight years old. And then that eight-year-old hands the smoker a folded up piece of paper that when they unfold it said, if that's the advice you're giving me, why aren't you following it yourself? And here's the number first smoking cessation hotline. Changed behavior in a big way. So a lot of what I do is try to point people to their own experience in a way that conflicts with what they've heard from big shoe companies, what the common, quote, common wisdom has become. The simplest thing I say is, I, you know, I held up a shoe and I go, take a look at a modern running shoe. Look at the shape of the toe box. It's pointy take a look at your foot. Is it pointy? If it is, it ain't supposed to be. It's only gotten that way from shoving it into pointy shoes. Or I say, remember when you were a kid, um, did you ever like run outside on a hot summer day and kick off your shoes and feel the grass between your toes and, or the sand under your feet if you're at the beach or maybe even just the dirt you're playing in and just, you know, you'd go out and play until it got so dark. You couldn't see the hand in front of your face, let alone the ball you're trying to kick and your parents would have to drag you home. You know, you, you can have that same kind of fun now. It's really easy. You just have to get out of shoes that make it so you can't feel the world so that you have no connection to the ground that you're walking on. Or, you know, look, you're already eating right and getting enough exercise and trying to get enough sleep, but are you paying attention to your foundation, your feet? It's simple. Like, like, um, like you know that a Tempur-Pedic mattress feels good, but you're not going to do push-ups on it or try to do, you know, jump rope on it because cushioning sucks energy out of your body. Well, look at the cushioning in your shoes. Guess what? It's doing the same thing. If you're going to do push-ups, you drop to the ground and you spread your fingers wide to give you balance and strength. But then if you squeeze your toes together in shoes, you're losing that balance and strength. So it's just pointing out things. What people say to me over and over and over is, that makes sense. Because it does. It's what the shoe companies have done that actually doesn't make sense. If you know anything about physics or often biology or chemistry or um, uh, um, biomechanics or, or like my favorite example... Adidas came out with a, a new foam called Boost Foam. This a few years ago. And the way they demonstrated how great it was is they took a two-pound steel ball and they showed how badly it bounced off of cement and it bounced a little better off some, you know, regular shoe foam, but it bounced really well off the Boost Foam and it bounced like, you know, 10 times before it came to rest. Okay. Um, well, as someone who knows physics, I immediately knew... That that was uh, nonsense, because but you can look up Exploratorium. It's a hands-on museum in San Francisco, and they have an exhibit where you can drop a steel ball through a, ple- a little plexiglass plate that's got a hole in the middle of it, and the steel ball hits a steel plate that has concrete underneath it, and when you bounce a steel ball off a steel plate, it bounces like two hundred and fifty times before it comes to rest. In fact, the first bounce hits the plastic, the plexiglass. Uh, top that you just drop the ball through because it returns point, like 99.9% of the energy comes back into that rebound. Foam is never remotely like that. But if you're going to use bounciness as a factor for good, you should be making shoes out of steel.
0: That's a really good point in terms of your bounciness playing to steel. Wow.
1: Well, I'll tell you, I, I mean, I want to do the shoe version of that where it's like, look, let's look at baby feet. They're so cute. We love baby feet. We nibble on their toes and we tickle their soles. And then we watch kids starting to walk. And, you know, you can see that they're using their feet. They can, you can tell that they're working the problem of how do I use these things to get me to stand up? Would you ever put a baby on a shoe like this? And it's like a two by four with straps on it. It's like, of course not. Cause then they can't move and they can't feel Well, guess what you're doing when you put your foot in a shoe that doesn't bend and move and flex and let you feel? If you wouldn't do it to a baby, why are you doing it to you?
0: Great point. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally?
1: There's two. The first is Stumbling on Happiness by Daniel Gilbert from Harvard. He did a TED Talk. So I'll do the Reader's Digest version of the TED Talk, which is a Reader's Digest version of the book. Almost every thought we have is trying to predict the future and predict what we would need to do to be happy in this imagined future. We're really bad at predicting it. We're even worse at remembering how bad we are at predicting it. And even if we could figure out, you know, be good at predicting, but we think we're special. And what that means is if we found a million people who got the thing that we think it takes to make us happy, and we found out that all of those million people were no happier than they were before and no happier than we are now, we'd still go, yeah, but if I got it, I know that everyone who won the lottery isn't happier than before they won the lottery, but if I won the lottery. So that's that one. The second one is Fooled by Randomness by Nassim Taleb. Most people know his book, The Black Swan, but Fooled by Randomness, the subtitle is something like The Hidden Role of Chance in Markets and Life. And people underestimate the value of luck and chance and many things that are out of our control. They overestimate their own agency, their own what they can affect in the world and the impact that that has. And they also underestimate how the world changes. So you could have a good idea 10 years ago, and now you have another idea that feels like a good idea, but the world changed. It's not a good idea anymore. The fact that you feel the same doesn't matter. The number one predictor of business failure is a previous success. You think you're smart. When people ask me about how we got to where we are, I'm not being glib when I say it's 90% luck, and the other 10% is also luck. And then there's a whole separate 100%. It's 90% working your butt off and then 10% hopefully being smart enough to know how to put out the fires that started overnight despite the fact that nothing changed since yesterday. So those two books really altered my thinking about um, how I think about the future and my actions today. And of course, the one I mentioned before, Catalyst, which is uh, really provocative.
0: Um, My final question to you, what's one piece of advice that you have for entrepreneurs?
1: Get a government job with a pension. Let me tell you why. Because look- This is not an easy road to hoe. There's no guarantees. It's a lot of hard work. If my saying get a government job with a pension made you think about that at all, you probably should get a government job with a pension. You might find that there are government jobs with pensions that are actually really interesting and let you have weekends and vacations and benefits and things that you don't get as an entrepreneur, really. Uh, The other thing is, if you are a, quote, true entrepreneur... There's nothing that I can say that will talk you out of your most likely stupid idea. And I say that because all of us, me included, most of the ideas we come up with are not really viable. And so, you know, it's again, tough road to hoe. All I can say is good luck because so much of it is that. I'm at the age now where a lot of my friends are retiring with their pensions. Man, they got it easy. And they had it easy along the way too. If someone had told me this in my 20s, it wouldn't have made a difference because I'm a quote, true entrepreneur. But if I was really smart, it would have made a difference. (laughs) And I probably would have found a gig that I could have been as creative and as motivated by and as interested in that would have let me had things like vacations and insurance and all those things that I didn't have for most of my life.
0: I think that's a good point. In government jobs or working the corporate world, there's still opportunities to be creative.
1: Absolutely. I've met people high up in the military who were some of the most interesting, not all liberal, but some very liberal, creative, unusual. I mean, like fascinating people that you don't think of. In fact, the higher they were, I met four-star generals and admirals and um, fascinating people who had really interesting careers. I met people who were doing things in the law that I didn't even know were part of the legal profession that would have been totally interesting to me. In fact, are interesting to me. And it would be more interesting if I wasn't you know, the subject of dealing with them, but I was just the person who was helping other people with it. So- uh, you know, there's a lot of opportunities that I just didn't know about when I was when I was young that would have been really cool. No, oh, that's
0: really cool. That's really cool. Well, Stephen, thank you again so much for your time. This has been a lot of fun chatting.
1: Oh no, my pleasure. Thank you.